Murder in the North, Episode 25, The Inheritance. On the 13th of November 1996, the residents of the Copenhagen neighborhood of Westerbro are woken up by screaming sirens. That's not unusual around here. At the nearby train station, Copenhagen Central, there's often trouble with drug dealers or sex workers and their clients. But this morning, the police aren't called out for the usual disturbances. Several occupants of the same apartment building have phoned the emergency services after hearing a woman yelling fearfully in one of the third-floor flats, No, you can't do that! Followed by a man howling. Then a loud, dull thump, and finally, a deafening silence. With the help of a locksmith, the police gain access to the apartment. Behind the open door, lying on the floor in the hallway, is a half-naked young man. He's dead. The officers immediately call for support. Not long after, paramedics and the forensics team arrive on the scene. Much of the street is cordoned off, and later that morning, curious onlookers watch as three stretchers are loaded into three separate ambulances. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking criminal cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Yana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Lone Rasmussen and her husband, Powell, who are both in their early 50s and academics, have lived in the same home on Dibblesgarda for 20 years. Their younger son, Martin, is 16, and their eldest son, Thomas, who moved out a few years earlier, is 23. At 108 square metres, the apartment in Westerbro is compact, but it's the heart of the family's busy life. The train station is just around the corner, and that's important, because Mother Lone works at the University of Aarhus, more than 185 kilometres away. Powell either drives or cycles to work at the University of Copenhagen, where he teaches Romance languages. They're known as an extrovert couple, with Lone the more popular one of the two. She has a great sense of humour and is well-liked by her colleagues. To the outside world, they look like a family that has its house in order. But behind closed doors, life is a lot less harmonious. Powell, the son of a farmer, is described by friends as surly and strict. He can be quite temperamental, and some of his wife's female friends think he's a tyrant. He doesn't like it one bit that his wife spends so much time away from home. Lone teaches several days a week and commutes between Copenhagen and Aarhus University, where she's a guest lecturer in Spanish. 
She's about to finish her PhD thesis and has also just been offered a post in Sweden. Like her husband, Lone is very ambitious, and both are often away from home for long periods of time. Occasionally, they'll work until the early hours and leave their sons to their own devices. The family love Spain and often visit their holiday home in a village near Seville. When they do, they travel in their Volkswagen camper van 3,000 kilometers in one go without stopping anywhere for the night. But when Thomas reaches his teens, the family go their separate ways for the holidays. Lone and Thomas stay in Denmark, Powell and Martin drive to Spain. In 1989, Howell and Martin, who's nine at the time, live in the Spanish holiday home for six months. Relatives later say that it was during this period that Martin's behavior changed. Half a year in the company of his father made him aggressive and mean. When Lone visits them for a holiday, she falls in love with a stray dog. She suggests they take it back to Denmark with them, but Powell won't have any of it and threatens to shoot the dog. Lone had better give the animal to one of the neighbors. Not long before, Powell had strangled the family's pet rabbit with his bare hands just because it had ringworm. The family's youngest son, Martin, now aged 16 years old, goes to grammar school and, like his father and older brother, he's a member of the local rifle club. Eldest son Thomas is studying biochemistry at the University of Copenhagen while also working as a programmer for IBM. In 1995, he gives up both his degree and his job because of mental health problems. Thomas goes to see a psychologist who, after a few sessions, advises him to consult a psychiatrist. He doesn't. Father Powell doesn't want his son to have too much contact with mental health services for the fear of the stigma it may bring. Thomas experiments with drugs. He and his friends like to go to Freetown Christiania, where he buys magic mushrooms. He tells his mates that Lone and Powell aren't his biological parents and that his real family are from the US. He also talks more and more about other people draining his energy. After months of hallucinations and delusions, Lone takes her son to a mental health crisis center. It's Saturday morning, the 12th of November, 1996. The doctor who examines him thinks that Thomas may be having a psychotic episode, a distorted view of reality. The doctor offers him a single room on the ward. Thomas refuses. The place is too loud and chaotic for him, and he doesn't want to be admitted. Instead, Lone persuades her son to come home on Sunday morning, so that as a family, they can figure out how to best help him. On Sunday the 13th of November 1996, Thomas makes his way to his parents' house on Dibblesgarda at 7 in the morning. Shortly after, the neighbours call the police because of the screaming and shouting and the weird noises they're hearing from the apartment. When the locksmith opens the door just before eight o'clock, the police are met with a gruesome sight. Martin is lying in the hallway. Powell is dead in the bedroom 
and Lone is lifeless on the dining room floor. The initial hypothesis is that this is a double murder and a suicide, but the forensic evidence reveals that there must have been a fourth person inside the apartment. Traces of blood belonging to the eldest son are found, and it is established that Thomas had been in the house that morning and was shot in the leg. He then changed his trousers and grabbed his father's car keys and checkbook. Thomas is arrested on Sunday evening after causing a car crash. He has 24,000 kroner, or just under 3,000 pounds on him. He forged his father's signature on two cheques and cashed them at two separate banks in the north of Shalland. After being detained at Copenhagen Police Headquarters and appearing before the magistrate's court, he's taken to hospital. At the time of his arrest, there were no traces of drugs or other narcotic substances in Thomas's blood. But he can't remember what happened in the early hours of the 13th of November. And so the police depend on evidence from the apartment to reconstruct the course of events. After several months at a psychiatric unit, Thomas's memory slowly returns. He now claims that his mother shot his father and then turned the gun on herself. The police investigation refutes his statements. On the 16th of March, 1998, the trial gets underway. Thomas is charged with murdering his father, mother, and younger brother. He is also accused of falsifying documents because he forged his father's signature on two cheques shortly after the murders. It's a remarkable case, and not just because of the intense violence of the family drama. A great many experts appear in court. Medical examiners, ballistic specialists, and blood spatter analysts all take to the witness box. A triple murder is a rarity in and of itself, especially when the victims are an entire family. And while parricide isn't that uncommon, it's unusual that here a brother was murdered too. In court, Thomas repeats his earlier story. He entered the apartment and saw his younger brother half-naked in his parents' bedroom. His parents were in the kitchen having a terrible fight, apparently because the mother had contradicted the father. Arguments were a regular occurrence, says Thomas, who left the kitchen and then heard his father slapping his mother in the face. When his father walked to the bedroom, he heard four shots. Thomas ran back and tried to wrestle the gun from his mother's hands. That's when it went off. A bullet hit him in the leg and he fled the apartment. As he tells his story, he speaks softly and looks down at the floor much of the time. The case takes a strange turn when one of the medical examiners states that semen was found on the bodies of Powell and Martin. Both samples belonged to Powell. A lengthy investigation follows to determine whether there was a history of incest or sexual abuse in the family. The police ask the Forensic Medical Council to assess how likely it is that the semen may have ended up on the younger son through use of his father's towel. The experts think it's impossible, 
adding that the semen that was detected was live. The public prosecutor has a different explanation for the semen. Because the medical examiner at the scene had only a single thermometer, the same one was used on all three deceased individuals. This is how the semen was transferred from father to son. None was found on Lone's body, and there is no other evidence that Martin had been sexually abused or otherwise mistreated. The case prompts changes in the way medical examiners work. From then on, whenever they're called to a crime scene, they have to carry at least two thermometers with them. Meanwhile, the evidence against Thomas is mounting. The police and prosecution service have been extremely thorough in securing and documenting the material found at the crime scene. The 12 jurors are given a folder with photos from the apartment. These harrowing images and the forensic evidence from the crime scene show that Powell was executed in his own bed with two shots to the chest. He must have had little or no time to realize what was happening. Powell was a member of the local rifle club and had three weapons at home, including a Walther and a Browning. One of the weapons was kept in a cupboard in the hallway, another in the younger son's room. None of them, and not any of the ammunition, was kept behind lock and key. Powell's body had bullets from both pistols. Lone's body only had bullets from the Browning. The Browning has a print of Thomas's left thumb, even though he's right-handed. Thomas explains this by saying that he tried to wrestle the gun from his mother, after which it went off, and he ended up with a bullet in his leg. Then, as he puts it, he panicked, grabbed his father's car keys and ran away. Thomas's statements are challenged by the experienced prosecutor and several experts. The blood spatter analysts spend an hour in the witness box to describe the crime scene and refute Thomas's account. Elongated blood spatters on the wall in the hallway show that Lone fought her son for the weapon. That's where the gun went off and a bullet hit Thomas in his leg. Thomas then hit his mother over the head with the butt of the gun a theory that's backed up by traces of Lone's blood on the white wall. Their tussle ended in the living room, where Lone knelt in front of the small desk, perhaps begging for her life. She had a total of eight shots fired at her, but it was a bullet in the neck that killed her. Finally, Thomas went after his younger brother. Martin was killed with four bullets. 33 people are called up to testify. One of them is Alex, a former friend of Thomas, who talks about the time they went traveling together in July 1995. During that trip, Thomas started suffering from delusions and tried to scratch Alex's eyes out from the back seat. The friend was then forced to slam on the brakes and ended up throwing Thomas out of the car. They haven't seen each other since. The psychological evaluation is unequivocal. Thomas suffers from paranoid schizophrenia, which has most likely been exacerbated by his experimentation with drugs. A sensitive person who tends to avoid contact with others, Thomas suffers from delusions, 
especially in relation to his family. He hallucinates and hears voices. In the secure unit, he's given medication to help with the symptoms. On the 27th of March 1998, after two very intense weeks for all involved, the jury reaches a verdict after only 90 minutes. We find the defendant guilty of the murder of his father, mother and brother, the foreperson of the jury says in a shaky voice. When the murder verdict is announced, Thomas heaves a deep sigh. He has always loved his little brother, and to accept responsibility for his death is hard for him and for his relatives as well. Given his state of mind at the moment of the attack, Thomas is ruled to have had diminished responsibility for his actions and is sentenced to imprisonment for public protection. Thomas's lawyer pleads for his client to be allowed to serve his sentence in a psychiatric unit. That way, he'll be able to remain at the hospital where he was treated during his trial. In addition, in the future, Thomas's doctors should be able to decide when he's well enough to be released. If he were to serve his sentence in a prison, a court would have to decide on his potential release. The public prosecutor submits a request to have Thomas's inheritance rights revoked. Under Danish law, someone found guilty of an intentional crime resulting in death can be denied the right to inherit. Lone and Powell leave quite a legacy. In addition to their apartment, the inheritance comprises the holiday home in Spain, as well as various annuities and life insurance policies. But Thomas is so mentally ill that it's debatable whether his actions were intentional or not. The prosecutor, however, argues that Thomas is less ill than he makes out to be, because after the murders, he stole his father's car keys and checkbook. Thomas cashed two cheques and managed to spend quite a bit of the money before he was arrested. The prosecutor therefore believes that he acted with foresight. The three judges and 12 jurors disagree on the matter of revoking the inheritance rights. A third of them are in favour of allowing Thomas to retain his rights. But the majority prevails, so even though Thomas can't be held fully accountable for his actions, he loses the right to his parents' inheritance. When Thomas's lawyer talks to the press later, he is critical of the verdict. The police never had the victim's clothing examined for gunpowder residue, even though this might have corroborated Thomas's testimony. And with respect to the actual course of events, who fired which shot and when? The lawyer claims that Powell hadn't been in the bedroom but in the living room, and that he was the instigator of the family dispute that culminated in Lone's death. Shortly afterwards, Thomas and his lawyer lodge an appeal with the Supreme Court. They want to challenge the verdict and demand that Thomas be allowed to serve his sentence in a penitentiary psychiatric centre instead of a regular prison. The following year, in March 1998, the Supreme Court rejects the appeal. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes, 
And to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.